0: Hey, so, big day for a lot of parents sending their kids off to kindergarten this week. I'll never forget an important day in the life of our family. Right out in front, the bus used to stop here, and our son got off the bus right outside the door of the church, and so I'd walk out the church to meet him. First day of school, first day of kindergarten, he gets off the bus I'm so excited to hear about what happened. I said, Alex, how was your first day of kindergarten? And he said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Funny thing, um, our family's in transition too this week. We're sending Alex off to college this week too. We're dropping him off on Friday. So if I don't have, if you see me wearing the same clothes for the next four years, you know it's because I'm, write, I'm writing tuition checks. Parents who have children in kindergarten, start saving your money now. (laughs) It's more expensive. College books cost a lot more than crayons. This morning, I do want to talk to you in a moment, though, about my son and tell you why we named him David Alexander Emery. I'm going to tell you today who we named him after. Now, to the sermon. So in the sermon today, we're looking at John chapter 10, and we've been walking through John all this summer, and today in chapter 10, uh, Jesus uses a couple of really good metaphors to describe himself. You know, John is trying to give us an image of who Jesus is and how Jesus brings life to the world. And so he uses a lot of these I am statements, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when he describes himself as the I am, he's saying this is what God is like. Jesus is making God real in human flesh. What is God like? Look at Jesus. Well, in the story today, he says, I am a gate. He says, I am a shepherd. And so today I want to talk about those two things. Those are some really interesting metaphors that would not necessarily be readily available for us to understand. Uh, They'd be difficult because we don't live in that culture and that time. I don't think there's anybody here that's ever been a shepherd. So most of you probably didn't grow up on farms. And so this is some inaccessible language. I hope to make it really clear for you today. So I'm going to read now, beginning at verse 8, I'm going to read through verse 11 and then I'm going to explain to you what this means to me, and hopefully we'll draw something good out of it today. Jesus says in verse 8, backing up a bit, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate, and those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Now, when they heard this spoken, the people knew that Jesus was referring back to the 23rd Psalm and back to Ezekiel and other passages in Scripture where Jesus, where, where the people of God. Talk about being shepherds and how all the great leaders and all the great teachers were shepherds. And they would have been remembered the 23rd Psalm where it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me to green pastures. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be not afraid because he is with me. They'd be familiar with it. And so here Jesus is identifying with that shepherd. David is shepherd. Himself is the shepherd. And he says, I have come to lead you to green pastures. I have come to give you a rich and abundant life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd that sacrifices his life for the sheep. Now, I want to just say two things in the beginning to set the context, then I'm going to make my application. You need to understand that when Jesus said these words, you need to understand what's going on. He just spent uh, several days in the temple. And in the temple, it is high drama. Everywhere he goes, he's facing large crowds of people trying to get close to him. Some believe in him and some don't. He has earned the disrespect and the hostility of the religious leadership. They accuse him of blasphemy, and on three occasions, they try to kill him. His life is being threatened, and everywhere he goes, there is intense drama and conflict. So when Jesus talks about gates and shepherds, he's talking in response to those who oppose him. And in Ezekiel 34, you can read it on your own, there's a description of what is a good shepherd and what's a bad shepherd. The bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34 are religious leaders who do the work of shepherding for their own pleasure and own benefit and to enrich themselves and who really don't care about the sheep and who don't go after lost sheep. But the good shepherd, Ezekiel says, is the one that comes to look for those who have been scattered that heal wounds Open doors and give life. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this I am language is really important when he says, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, because those were words used for God. Those were the names of God. You may remember in Exodus when Moses went back to Egypt, Moses said, Well, God, who am I supposed to say is sending me back to Egypt? They're going to ask me, who sent me? You tell them, I am sent me. I feel like crying sometimes too when I'm in church, you know? That's okay. So he says, tell them, I am sent me, the great I am. And so when Jesus is in the temple... And they're saying, who gave you the authority to say all these things and to do all these things? Who sent you? And he says, I am. He doesn't say, I am sent me. He just says, I am. And that's what makes him so angry. He's not just saying he's a prophet. He's saying that he is God. He is life. So let's dig then now into the first image, the image of the gate. So we all are familiar with the gates. And so when Jesus says, I am the gate, let me ask you, what kind of gate is it? Is it a gate that is meant to be closed to deny people access to God? Or is it a gate that he intends to open to give people access to God. Now, uh, the people who heard him say this understood uh, what gates were about because the temple itself, in some respects, was a fenced-off, gated community. If you were blind, if you were lame, if you were sick, if you were Samaritan, if you were Roman, you weren't allowed inside the temple gate at all because in some way you are unworthy, unclean, unacceptable. You hadn't earned the right, and so you... Couldn't get through the gate. And then, if you're a Gentile, you could only go so far before you found another gate. If you're a woman, you could go through another door, but then you'd come up against another locked gate. And uh, if you were a man, you would come to another part of the temple where you couldn't go any further because you weren't a priest. And then there was a certain part of the temple where God lived on the Holy of Holies where he sat on the throne. His presence was meant to be. And only one person could go through that gate. The only way he could get through that gate was to cleanse yourself. And so everywhere they went, they saw gates. Everywhere. So was it a gate to be opened or closed? To deny access or to give access? Now, I know what you're thinking right now. David, we know what you're about to say. We've been listening to you for a long time. We know the gate swings open. We know that you're going to tell us what you've always been telling us, that that he gives access to God and that it's not a gate to deny people, but it's a gate to open for people. Well, I know you know that. But let me ask you, do the people outside our church know that? I I, I think if you were to do an unsophisticated survey in some way, and if you were to ask people... About to, to, to give you their opinion of religion in general or Christians in general, you would hear what we often hear, that Christians are judgmental, that Christians condemn others, that Christians are exclusive. I know this to be true. Because as soon as I tell somebody that I'm a minister, they hide their beer. I mean, this is, you know, Or i'm on an airplane i say i'm a minister they either start telling me everything or they look for another seat (laughs) Uh, so i've had this experience myself Uh, a few weeks ago my wife and i went to visit a local uh, catholic congregation it was wonderful we went to mass on a saturday night i will probably return again we have a lot of friends that attend this particular catholic church the sanctuary is beautiful. The liturgy was beautiful. The message was beautiful. Everything about it was really meaningful. But there was this one part of the service where I was made to feel as if there's an us and them. People had to crawl over me because I had to remain seated when it came time to share the communion. Now, now, now let me know. Let's just be really careful. Let's just say, let's not condemn others who feel, who, who closed the door to communion. Uh, Let me tell you about an experience in our church. A few years ago, this actually happened here. Uh, There was a a woman that had been visiting our church, and she had come to believe that our church was somewhat different from other churches she attended. And she had a young friend who had a very negative opinion of churches. She'd only been in churches a few times, and those few times had become uncomfortable to her, and she had left feeling shamed about her life. And so she didn't want to go, and she didn't believe her when she said this church is different. Finally, she persuaded the young woman to come to church, and she came on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock and sat in the service and sat three rows from the back over here. She'd never been in a church where they were taking communion, and it was a little awkward for her, and so as they were passing the trays, she was unsure what to do. Do How much bread do I get? Uh... Do I hold the cup? Do I drink the cup? Do I get to take it? Do I not? What did the minister say? And so she's doing what you would do. She was whispering to the person beside her who had brought her and had said, this place is different. And then some woman, I don't know who it was, that was sitting in front of her, heard her whispering, and turned around and said, Shh, we're taking communion. Be quiet. My friend who was attending said the woman never came back to visit our church and said she would never, ever go back to a church again. Let me ask you, so is, so, you know, just don't take my word for it. Let's look at the scripture itself. What does the Bible say about open gates and closed gates? I think one of the best ways to do is just look at Jesus. Let's find out what Jesus said, not what David Emory thinks. Look in John and see who Jesus associated with. Uh, in chapter 4, Jesus goes to a Samaritan woman at the well who was excluded from all religious life in Israel. She would have been condemned and judged, unwelcomed. And in chapter 4, we see him giving her living water. She becomes the first official missionary and converts her whole town to Jesus through her story. Then there's a Roman official who, in all respects, would have been despised By the Jewish people, not respected or appreciated, and even hated. And Jesus meets him on the road and heals his son. Then in chapter 5, this is a wonderful story. Here's a lame man who is not allowed to go to the temple. First of all, he can't get into the temple. Secondly, he would have been denied the temple because he would have been con- in the temple access because he would have been considered a sinner from birth because his parents must have done something wrong for him to be lame or he did something wrong. And so he was just laying around by the swimming pool hoping for a miracle that somebody would touch him and he would get healed. And then Jesus comes along in the story, seeks him out out of the thousands of people in Jerusalem at that time holiday who were ignoring the man, heals him. The next thing you know, you see the man. Where is he? He's up dancing around in the temple. Jumping up and down in the temple. Then we see a hungry crowd. Where are they? They're not in the temple. It's a hungry crowd of people, all kinds of people. They're out in the desert. Why are they in the desert? Because Jesus is feeding them, giving them the word of God in the desert. They weren't getting it elsewhere. And then a sinful woman. It's interesting that this woman, should have been denied access to to the temple, but she is actually allowed to go through the gate. But the reason she is going through the gate is because they're taking her in to sentence her, to condemn her, to, to shame her, and to punish her. That's the way a lot of people feel. They feel like if I go, I will be shamed, I will be guilted, I will be condemned. But Jesus said, Let those without sin cast the first stone. Then the last one, the blind man, the blind man's on the outside of the temple. He can't get in the temple because they believe his parents are sinners or he's a sinner. He must have done something wrong. But then Jesus gives him life. And so when you look at the Gospel of John, you see that the people he seems to have most trouble with are not the people on the outside, but the people on the inside. And what we see him doing, doing again and again and again is opening doors, opening gates, being radical and outrageous and generous with the love of God. He's a gate opener, not a closer. Let me tell you a story. Tell you a story. So there was a man, his name was his name was Alexander. His name was Alexander Campbell. And in the end of the 1700s, he was born. And then in 1800, you know, 1801, 1802, he was a student. He was a Scottish-Irish immigrant who came to the United States. But as a student, he was studying theology at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, studying to be a minister. At the time, he belonged to a Presbyterian church called the Anti-Burger Succeeder Presbyterian Church. Now the name says a lot because with every little adjective attached to the name it represented a division within the church. So there was the Presbyterian Church and then some people became unhappy with the Presbyterian Church and left the Presbyterian Church and became the Succeder Presbyterian Church. Then some people succeeded from the Succeder Presbyterian Church and became the Burger Succeder Presbyterian Church. Then some people became unhappy with the burgers and became the anti-burger succeeder Presbyterian church. Division after division after division over theology. And at that time, they wanted to make sure that whenever they would hold communion services, that the right people who believed the right things could be allowed access to communion. And so what they would do is, if you were taking communion, they did it twice a year. Uh, you would have to go before the minister and you would have to take a test. A test of your beliefs and then given a thorough moral examination. If you passed the exam, you would then be given one of these, uh, a token that said, this do in remembrance of me. They would then set up the communion service and they would actually put fences around tables where the communion was served. And then what you would do on the night the communion was served, or the service which was served, you would have your token in hand, you had passed the test, you were acceptable, you were worthy, you could come in, and you would walk to the gate, and then you would hand the token, and you would get your communion. And what is interesting is on many of these tokens, the tokens were owned by the ministers, by the way, and the name of the minister would be inscribed on the token, what does that say? This Eucharist is my possession. I get to say who comes and who goes. This young theology student, um, Alexander Campbell, was troubled by this and what he was reading in Scripture. And he began to wonder, "This this do and remembrance of me, does this really reflect the teaching of Jesus? He passed the test on the night communion was to be taken. He got his token. And then 800 people gathered in a sanctuary to take communion. And then things were made worse when the minister got up and through his words, fenced off the table. You know what I mean? It's through his words were so harsh and unwelcoming and judgmental that he felt the fence got even higher. So he stood in line. He stood at the back of the line wondering what he was going to do. And as he got to the table, he made up his mind. He took the token walked up and loudly tossed it on the table, turned around, and walked out. Shortly thereafter, he got on a ship and came to the United States and settled in a part of Pennsylvania, Washington, Pennsylvania, where he began to pastor a church with his father, Thomas Campbell, who had come earlier This is what his biographer writes about Alexander Campbell. He writes that at the age of 21, Alexander joined with his father in what would become a lifelong endeavor to serve God and his people by proclaiming a message of grace. He sincerely believed that no man had the right to sit in judgment on the spiritual worthiness of another to come to the table of the Lord. Well, who was Alexander Campbell? one of three founders of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. There was another one who felt the same way that he did. He was a Presbyterian minister in Cambridge, Ridge, Kentucky, which is Bourbon County, and he had reached the same conclusions, that we were only Christians, not the only Christians, and that we should tear down the barriers and the gates that separate and divide people by theology and beliefs, and that we should focus on serving and opening the doors and loving And actually, at Barton Stone's church, slaves and Christians worshiped together. One communion. Then something happening remarkable, Barton Stone and Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell found out about their two different groups. And in 1832, Alexander Campbell set a representative on his behalf by the name of John Raccoon Smith. Lovingly referred to as the Big Dipper because he baptized so many people. <laughs> Sent John Raccoon Smith on his behalf to Lexington, Kentucky in 1832 to shake hands with Barton Stone to start the Restoration Movement, which is the founding of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. They shook hands within a free throw of Rupp Arena. There was a farmer by the name of John Brown, a gentleman farmer by the name of John Brown that lived with a a free throw of this building. Captured by this vision, he was a member of the Anchorage Presbyterian Church. He left the Anchorage Presbyterian Church with a dream of starting a church that became Middletown Christian Church in 1836, four years later. I named my son after Alexander Campbell because of this message of grace. 30 years ago on August 9th I was ordained at, at uh, South Hills Christian Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and I knelt on the altar and they laid hands on me and prayed for me and commissioned me to preach the gospel. And there was an old minister there by the name of Dr. Dick Cruz. At that time, I was 25, and he was 70. He seemed like an old man. Watch it. And uh, he preached a fiery sermon. I don't remember much about the sermon, but I do remember him saying this. At the end of the sermon, he looked at me, and he said, David, I want to quote one of the most respected theological voices of the 20th century. His name is D. Snyder. He sings for Twisted Sister. Remember this picture, folks? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I was taken aback by the moment. And he quoted a song, he quoted some lyrics from, from the only song anybody remember from Twisted Sister. You gotta fight for your right to party. It shows how old you are. He got up and he said, He said, David, I wanna I wanna challenge you on your ordination. You gotta fight for your right to party. He said, No, 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 no. You gotta fight for your right to preach. My message for 30 years has been the same. A burning passion to preach the unconditional love of God found in Jesus Christ for all people to open the doors of the church and to build an inclusive church. And that's not my message. That's Alexander Campbell's message. That's John Brown's message that started this church. That is... The minister of the church, I grew up in his message. That was a Sunday school teacher who laid hands on me, Wanda Combs, who, who taught me the Bible. That was her message. That was the message of Dick Cruz. And in my entire 30 years of preaching the gospel to people, do you want to know what's gotten me into the most trouble? That message. But I, I stand corrected. Corrected. I have gotten in more trouble about one other thing. It's when I've forgotten that message. When I've forgotten why I was called. When I've forgotten who I was. When I've forgotten where I came from. When I've forgotten the story of Alexander Campbell and that we are called to preach a message of grace and inclusion. You see, here's why we do it. Because when he, he, he said, I am the gate, he was... He was opening the gate. Why? He was opening the gate so that people could be saved. And when he talks about thieves and robbers, who's he talking about? He's not talking about the devil. That's too convenient. That lets religious people off the hook. The devil and the sheep in wolf's clothing are priests and preachers who want to charge people what they were given for free who have been welcomed into the ministry and the love of Jesus Christ, not because of what they've done, but because of who God is, and then who want to set up fences to keep people out. It's the highest level of arrogance and pride to want to charge someone something when it was a free gift to begin with, and it doesn't even belong to us. I'm preaching now. So that's... It, and then he says, I want to lead people to green pastures, to life. Think about the green pastures that he took that blind man to. The green pastures that he took that Samaritan woman to. The green pastures that he wants to lead this world to. A scorched earth of hate and bigotry. He wants to lead people to life. He is the shepherd. The shepherd that lays his life down for his sheep so it occurs to me so that gate you know that opens it opens to let people in but he also opened it to let religious people out of the cold soul stealing grip of you want to know why we've been trying to pay down the church debt? Can I just say it right now? Let's just, let's just put a stamp on it. It's to embrace our city. We have been called to embrace Louisville, Kentucky. The reason we have paid our debt down in the last year and a half, praise God, is so that we can flip the narrative of our church and, and turn all of our assets outside to the world to serve the poor, to serve the homeless, to reach the wounded, To reach out to the sick, that's our message. And we go because we want them to know that God is not divinely sanctioned their suffering. That God has come to relieve their suffering. And that we come in the name of the one who says, I am the good shepherd. I have come to bring life, not death. And wherever Jesus shows up, people get life.